Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. My friend called me and said, Chuck, you remember the physicals that Dr. Anderson gave us? I said, yeah. He's like, he was raping us. I'm like, what? And that's when it all came together that I realized that I was a rape victim. Welcome to the Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Fall in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is usually a time for pageantry and pride as fans fill the famed Big House to watch the Michigan Wolverines play football. But this fall has been different than most. While the team on the field has given fans plenty to cheer for, outside the stadium, a group of men are calling not for celebration, but for justice. These men are former Michigan Wolverines themselves, who were alleged victims of longtime Michigan athletic Dr. Robert Anderson. Sadly, you've probably heard a story like this before, and names like Jerry Sandusky, Larry Nasser. But on this installment of the podcast, you'll learn about another tragic sex abuse scandal that may somehow be even larger in scale, spanning more than 30 years and indelibly impacting the lives of more than 1,000 suspected survivors. Kavitha Davidson went to Ann Arbor to meet some of these men and hear their stories. Coming up, you'll get her report, and then we'll be joined by Dr. Amos Giora. Dr. Giora is a professor at the University of Utah who's written extensively on the subject of sexual assault, focusing specifically on institutional complicity. He studies the dynamics of organizational failure that has enabled abuse like this to take root at places like Penn State, USA Gymnastics, and now University of Michigan. All of that to come. But first, here's Kavitha Davidson's latest Real Sports Report. For the past six weeks, John Vaughn, once a running back in the NFL, has been living in a tent on the side of a road. It's not because he's homeless. And it's certainly not for fun. Quite frankly, I really don't know what I'm doing because I've never camped in my life. It's because Vaughn is staging a protest against his own alma mater, the University of Michigan. All autumn, he's been camped in front of the lawn of the school president, demanding an audience without success. Have you seen him at all? Yeah, I see him almost every day, okay. unless he's out of town. Does he um, talk to you? No. Let the president hear your voice. Vaughn says he wants accountability for what he says happened to him and countless others here. At some point in time, I'm going to get the entire truth out. I'm 51 years old, and I've had the fight for the rest of my life. To expose this shit at Michigan, then that's what I'm going to do. What he wants exposed is perhaps the largest case of sexual abuse in the history of college sports. While everyone knows the names Jerry Sandusky and Larry Nasser, far fewer have heard of the late Robert Anderson, 
a doctor who worked for the athletic department at the University of Michigan throughout the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. They were the glory days of Michigan sports, when the school's athletic teams were routinely among the very best in the country. But all the while, the school's athletes were in the care of a man some now say was a predator. John Vaughn still remembers his first examination by Dr. Anderson. He was a healthy teenager, but was told by the doctor that he would need to be screened for a severe disease over and over. He says, we need to do a prostate cancer screening. He proceeded to put two fingers in my rectum. How many times did you see Dr. Anderson during your your years at Michigan? Approximately 50 times. And how many times would you say he gave you a prostate exam? 50 times. Each time, Vaughn says, he obliged. Just as he did one day when he went to Dr. Anderson after having been kicked in the groin during practice. Dr. A told me that I had to give a sperm sample. Why did he say he needed a sperm sample? To uh, just make sure there was no infection or anything like that. But he said, I need to finish to make sure I collect it right. What do you mean? Um, that's, uh, he needed to finish me to collect the sperm sample. Numerous other athletes say that they, too, were masturbated by Anderson and that they, too, were given rectal exams at each and every visit. They say that the doctor's behavior was an open secret, and some athletic department staffers would even mock the players about it. Paul Schmidt, who was a trainer, would make jokes, you know, uh, just take your medicine. You better get used to it. (laughs) You would hear coaches threaten players. Well, shoot, I'm just going to send you to Doc A. So sending a player to Dr. Anderson was used as a threat. Absolutely. Vaughn says it never occurred to him to report his doctor's conduct to anyone. But there was a Michigan athlete who tried to do just that, all the way back in 1975. He was a wrestler named Tad DeLuca, and he too vividly recalls his first examination by Dr. Anderson. He started, for lack of a better word, massaging my penis or rolling my testicles around. And then there was a prostate exam, which was turn around, bend over, and it was like, whoa. Did you, at the time, think that that was unusual? No. It just, okay, that's what happens. But it happened every time DeLuca went back to the doctor, more than a dozen times in all. Then one day, as he was planning another visit to Anderson, this time for an elbow problem, he ran into a football player, whose reaction to Anderson flipped a switch in DeLuca's mind. I says, oh yeah, I gotta go see Dr. Anderson tomorrow, my elbow's still coming out. And he just started flailing his arms and yelling and screaming, pervert. My friend Jimmy went in for his shoulder and he got the glove. By then I realized, yeah, I had, I got the glove. What's going through your mind when the football player calls him a pervert? Just disbelief. I, you know, all of a sudden you find out that this guy is inserting his finger into my rectum for, for fun. And it's like, holy cow. It's like, what is wrong with me that he wanted to do that to me? You thought there was something wrong with you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, I'm I'm never going to see him again. DeLuca says he soon found himself in a dark place. First came feelings of confusion and isolation. Then... I started wetting the bed. Why did you think you were wetting the bed? At that time, no idea. 
just, I knew something was wrong. Didn't know how to isolate it or pinpoint it. To make matters worse, after DeLuca refused any more treatment from Dr. Anderson, his elbow deteriorated. And so did his performance on the mat. The summer after his junior year, he got a letter from his coach. He ripped me up one side and down the other. I was lazy, worthless, I didn't work hard. So I unloaded a lot of stuff on him. I told him every problem I was having and sent him a letter. On the second page, you mm. wrote, something is wrong with Dr. Yeah. Anderson. Yeah. I said, hey, doctor, drop your drawers, Anderson. No matter what you go in there for, he makes you drop your drawers and cough. Were you hoping that some consequence to Dr. Anderson would come from that letter? I was shocked when I got his second letter. There was no reference to Dr. Anderson at all. He didn't acknowledge nothing, that? Nothing, nothing. What the coach did write was that he was pulling DeLuca's athletic scholarship. But while DeLuca was purged from Michigan athletics, Dr. Anderson would remain to examine more athletes at the school over the next three decades, potentially as many as 7,000 athletes in all. Wide open is Christian. And he has a first down. Like Chuck Christian, who arrived at Michigan two years later to play football and was abused by Anderson so regularly during physicals, he began to fear seeing him. There were times when I would get sick and then the trainer would say, okay, I need you to go see Dr. Anderson. It's like, uh, I'm not that sick. Even after he left the school, Christian says he remained traumatized by the abuse. Like when, at age 45, he went to see a urologist after noticing blood in his urine. He said, Chuck, I need to check your prostate. Then he went over to the corner and he put the glove on and snapped it. And I jumped up out of my chair and I said, oh, no, oh, no, you're not going to do that to me. It was like, I went back into Dr. Anderson's office at 18 years old. But now I'm, I'm, I'm 45. I'm not going to let you do this to me again. Then I got up and I walked out of, out of his office. Christian would only learn the consequence of that moment 12 years later, when symptoms returned and got so severe that his wife convinced him to finally return to the doctor. He told me that I had prostate cancer. And it spread throughout my spine, my ribs, my hips, my tailbone, my shoulders. So the doctors said, we give you three years to live. Have your doctors ever told you how much your cancer might have developed in those 12 oh, years? Yeah. yeah. They said, why didn't you come in sooner? Because this is something that could have been fixed so easily but I was not going to let anybody do a digital exam on me again. I couldn't let that happen. It's time for your medications. I know. Christian believes that if he had never seen Dr. Anderson, he wouldn't be dying right now. Many others now say they are suffering in their own ways and point the blame at not just Dr. Anderson, but at the school officials who did nothing to stop him. It's now known that Anderson's inappropriate behavior was brought to the attention of coaches, trainers, administrators, or other Michigan officials on more than 20 separate occasions. Like the letter Tad DeLuca sent in 1975. A cry for help, he says, that went unheard. After that, DeLuca says he spent decades suffering in silence. Until one day when he heard a story on the news, 
about the survivors of another abusive doctor from down the road at Michigan State. Driving home from Home Depot, had public radio on, and hearing about Larry Nasser's survivors, it was like, holy crap. I know the story. This, this happened to me. This is what it looks like when people in authority refuse to listen. DeLuca says that after some of America's top gymnasts spoke out about Larry Nasser, he decided he had some unfinished business to take care of. So just as he did 43 years earlier, he wrote a letter and mailed it off to the University of Michigan. Would you mind reading me your I'll try. letter? Thank you. <clears throat> July 18th, 2018. I'm writing to inform the University of Michigan Athletic Department about something that happened to me in the 1970s. This time, DeLuca's letter prompted action. The school began an internal investigation, one that was exposed by the Detroit News. And before long, more than a thousand accusers came forward, generations of Michigan athletes finally confronting their pasts. My friend called me and said, Chuck, you remember the physicals that Dr. Anderson gave us? I said, yeah. He's like, he was raping us. I'm like, what? And that's when it all came together that I realized that I was a rape victim. Thank you, guys. But the more that has come out, the more questions are being raised. Vaughn says he wants to know why exactly Anderson took his sperm samples and what he did with them. There's no chain of custody for my sperm samples. You've asked. I've asked. And he's not alone. Numerous other athletes have reported that they too had sperm samples collected by Anderson. Even more concerning, Vaughn recently learned that Dr. Anderson was doing some side work at the school all those years ago. I found out Dr. Anderson was doing fertility counseling from the early 70s. You're worried that your sperm was used in artificial insemination. Absolutely. How would you react if you found out that your sperm was used in the fertility clinic? I don't know if I'm emotionally ready to deal with that. Vaughn is also wondering how much was known by the man who brought him to Michigan, the school's legendary football coach, the late Bo Schembechler, who was immortalized in bronze in front of the building that bears his name. Multiple people say they reported Anderson's abuse directly to Schembechler, including his own stepson, who says he was sexually assaulted during a doctor's visit with Anderson when he was just a boy. Yet many in the Michigan community resist the idea that Schembechler knew. Like the current head coach of the football team, Jim Harbaugh, who famously led some of Schembechler's greatest teams in the 1980s and recently responded to the notion that his mentor might have heard the truth and buried it. There was nothing that ever was swept under the rug or ignored. He addressed everything in a timely fashion. Uh, that's the Bo Schembechler, and I know. How do you react to that? Fuck him. That's the most insensitive, irresponsible comment ever. When you know your teammates suffered rape, Fuck you, Jim Harbaugh, and fuck everybody that follows you. Why do you think it's so hard for people to believe that Bo knew? Because a lot of the former players and fans, they have put Bo on this pedestal as if he could do no wrong. 
they love Bo. A lot of people, I, I love Bo. And it was really hard to believe that he would let this happen to us. All we needed was for one man to stand up for us, but not one did. Other players focused their ire on Paul Schmidt, the trainer who many say used to mock his players about having to see Dr. Anderson. Schmidt is still at Michigan today, no longer just a trainer. He has worked his way up to the position of assistant athletic director. Schmidt told investigators hired by the university that he assumed Anderson's procedures were appropriate. But many of Anderson's victims say that by standing by Schmidt, Michigan is continuing to turn its back on them. How is it that he just celebrated 35 years at this university? Like, enough is enough. Is that part of the endgame, getting Paul Schmidt out of here? Hell yeah. John Vaughn says he wants an accounting from the school and an apology for what was allowed to happen here. Tonight is not about us. It's why he spent the last two months camped out in front of the home of the school president, demanding that he be heard, refusing, he says, to be an anonymous victim. It's been half a century that this university has been mired in sexual assault, abuse, and cover-up. And we say no more. I will not be John Doe. I am John Vaughn! It's now day 46 of Vaughn's protest. He says he'll stay as long as it takes. And he's got some reinforcements here to help him. Tad DeLuca came down from northern Michigan. And Chuck Christian packed up his car with a second tent and his cancer medications and drove 15 hours from Massachusetts to set up camp with Vaughn. John said, I was built for this. I practiced in the rain. I played in the rain. I can protest in the rain. Mm. I said, you're right. And then a few days later, I came up and joined him. Do you think you'll live long enough to see justice here? Mm -hmm. I do. It's not the fourth quarter with uh, with with a few seconds left. <laughs> it's the beginning of the game for me. Do you feel like you're back on a team? Yeah, 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 I do. Right now we're in a war. That's why we've come together as survivors. And this is not a battle we can afford to lose. And now joining us is Dr. Amos Giora. He's a professor of law at University of Utah, an expert on the matter of institutional complicity, and author of a book titled Armies of Enablers, Survivors' Stories of Complicity and Betrayal and Sexual Assault. He's also in the process of writing a new book with John Vaughn about what happened at Michigan. Dr. Giora, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So what happened at Michigan hits close to home for you. Why is that? Indeed, that's exactly correct. I grew up in Ann Arbor. My late father was a professor at the medical school at the University of Michigan while Dr. Anderson was committing what are clearly heinous crimes. In many ways, I would define myself as a son of Ann Arbor, even though I didn't go to Michigan either for college or for law school. But I am as true blue as they come. And I have season tickets to the University of Michigan football games. And I fly in from Salt Lake City because I teach at the University of Utah. I fly in for almost every game every year. And I even go occasionally to away games. 
you love Michigan football, but as we'll discuss here shortly, you, doctor, know as well as anyone how abuse can take root in institutions like a major university. So take me back to how you reacted when you first found out about Dr. Anderson. I was in a meeting in East Lansing, Michigan, interviewing people about what happened at Michigan State with Larry Nasser. And one of the people in the meeting said to me, you know, uh, Giora, Michigan's next. And I said, no way. Penn State, yeah. Ohio State, yeah. Michigan State, yeah. Catholic Church, yeah. But not the University of Michigan. Those of us who came from Ann Arbor, you know, grew up in the Michigan difference and Ann Arbor's different. And what happened in Michigan State or Ohio State can't happen in the University of Michigan. And, you know, the truth is that, frankly speaking, it can happen anywhere. You could take out the name of Institution X and put in Institution Y, take out Institution Y, put in Institution Z. And as you correctly noted, this really is about institutional complicity and the enabling culture through and through. And I want to get into that with you. But first, you have in my mind a very interesting academic specialization. In addition to sexual assault, you also focus on issues of foreign policy, like counterterrorism, and you teach on the Holocaust. So what's the common link here that's led you to focus on this particular set of subjects? So I served for 20 years in Israel Defense Forces, where I was involved in the legal and policy aspects of operational counterterrorism, along with the peace process with the Palestinians. And when I first came to American academia in 2004, my teaching and writings were primarily counterterrorism. And then while training for the Salt Lake Marathon about eight years ago, my running partner, we were just in the middle of one of those awful 20-mile runs, asked me, how did this, this being the Holocaust, how did this happen? Because she knew that I was uh, the only child of two Holocaust survivors. And I had a brilliant academic answer, which shows you how, how brilliant I am, which was, I have no idea. Because I was raised in a home where the word Holocaust was never mentioned. My parents had made a decision when they got married, whatever, 100 years ago, that they will never share with their children. I'm an only child, but they will never share with their children their Holocaust experiences. And as I learned while writing the book, Crime of Complicity, The Bystander and the Holocaust, they didn't share with each other each other's Holocaust stories. And I decided, I'm 64 today. And I then was 55, so I guess it was nine years ago, that uh, enough is enough. And I wanted to learn about the Holocaust. And during the course of writing that book and researching it, I became, in polite English, obsessed with this notion of the bystander, the person who's present but doesn't act. And that book led to Armies of Enablers, which is about the enabler who's not present but knows about harm to another individual. You know, in terms of, of themes, it's an interesting question. I think the, the, the notion is this notion of if you, if you see harm to another or if you know of harm to another, staying quiet is really it's a comfort zone. But we all know the consequences of that. And I think to your question, it is that realization, which I now well understand, and not to be dramatic. We, you know, we in America, we like to say words kill. I think it's also you can safely say that silence kills. And I, and I think maybe maybe that's the answer. Well, getting back to what happened at Michigan, the obvious analogy people draw is to Penn State and Jerry Sandusky. Is it in your mind a coincidence that these terrible things happened for decades at two major state universities in the Big Ten? Or were there inherent conditions that allowed this to happen at both places? I think whether it's you know Penn State, sure, Ohio State, Michigan State, USA Gymnastics, these are very hierarchical structures with athletes who, to get on the field, 
you have to be lockstep with the machine. Dissent is not welcomed. And if the coach says, go see, go here, go there, you go here or you go there. These are, whether it's the Michigan State athletes or USA Gymnastics, Ohio State, Michigan, these are highly competitive, highly driven young people emphasize with significant pressures on them, the pressure to succeed. They're also, frankly, parental pressures. And a football program like Michigan with its 120 guys or 130, whatever it is, you know, whether it's Schembechler or Michigan, Paterno or Penn State, discipline is essential. And if you're told to go see Dr. X, you go see Dr. X. And if Dr. X does things to you that are problematic, then you just keep on doing exactly what you've been told to do. It's a system that does not brook dissent. You mentioned Schembechler and Paterno. We heard in that story what Jim Harbaugh has said, refusing to believe that Bo Schembechler was an enabler of this abuse in the same way that so many associated with Penn State were adamant that Joe Paterno had done no wrong. How do you view that dynamic where these football coaches, as you noted, are at the top of this hierarchy and to many people seem beyond reproach? So I begin, first of all, with, with Coach Harbaugh. You know, if I were advising Harbaugh, I probably would have told him, wait until all the facts are out, until the process has played itself out, rather than jumping. I thought that Harbaugh did a, a serious disservice, if you ask me. With respect to Schembechler Paterno, these guys are CEOs who are CEOs of major organizations that must succeed because the stakes are so high. The money is huge here. In the context of institutional complicity, with all due respect to the millions, hundreds of millions that are at stake here, I think we all forget that at the end of the day, the university as an institution has a duty to the person who it has brought on its campus and is exposing them to danger, harm, which is what Dr. Anderson was. And in forgetting that primary duty, the university, from my perspective, is guilty of two things, of being institutional complicity and of being the enabling culture. But what really worries me now that I'm so deeply entrenched in this research is that enabling or silence to the previous question, the consequences are devastating from the perspective of the survivor slash victim. They also tell me whether it's the, I mean, all the survivors who I've interviewed by now worldwide make a point of, make, of telling me the following, the attack, whether it's a rape, abuse, assault, that's actually not the issue that, that weighs on them. What really weighs on them is the knowledge that the institution that they loved, past tense loved, betrayed them. And that's the consequence of complicity and enabling. Beyond Jim Harbaugh's response, what do you make of Michigan's larger institutional response to date? What they've said, what they've done, and what they haven't? The University of Michigan could literally write a textbook on every, making every mistake possible. If you want to learn how not to react to these situations, just see what Michigan has done. It's for me, not only watching from a distance, but also now obviously through the book with John, being up close and personal. You could not have mishandled this more poorly than Michigan has mishandled this. But I think the University of Michigan has forgotten that the John Vaughns of the world, I mean, there are 950 plaintiffs, 1,000 plaintiffs, those were people who you as a university had a primary duty to, 
you know, as someone who teaches law, the, one of the main questions that I ask my students is what's, what is the duty and who's the duty owed to? And the duty that when Michigan brings Vaughn and others to Ann Arbor, the duty is owed to them. The duty is not owed to the institution, right? And, you know, the, the brand, the brand, the brand, which Michigan loves talking about the M brand. And it really is a profound misunderstanding of the primary obligation. But that's what complicity and enabling is about and what it leads to. Issues of systemic abuse, of course, Dr. Giora, have permeated all facets of society, not just sport. So what are the fundamental things from your research that you believe are, are leading to the repeat of this vicious cycle? And what needs to change within these institutions, be it a state university, a national sport governing body, or the, the Boy Scouts, in order to prevent future episodes? Absolutely. So let's begin with what, what is the motivation for the, for the enabler? That's really what you're asking. One, because the enabler, identi- the enabler is the person who knew but didn't act. One, they identify with the institution, they don't identify with the survivor. Two, this was made very clear to me by the girls who were in the Olympics, that the women enablers, and this I know this is an uncomfortable conversation, but it is what it is. The, the girls tell me that women enablers are jealous of women athletes, and they dislike them. There's you know pushback about that. Three, some enablers perhaps feel that there's a financial, they have a financial stake in the institutional well-being. There may be harm to them. Some simply don't like the athletes, and some people are simply apathetic. Take you back to what I said earlier about silent skills. What needs to be done? One, institutions need to take accountability and to assume accountability and to have accountability imposed on them. There's two ways to do that. One is civil suits, which is playing itself out at the University of Michigan. And two is I'm a firm believer in criminalizing the enabler. So I'm working with legislators, both the United States and elsewhere. I mean, outside the United States, there's no, there's not one jurisdiction in America today or in the world that criminalizes the enabler. And I'm very hopeful that in these different jurisdictions that I'm working in, legislators who I'm working with, that there will indeed begin the process of criminalizing enablers and criminal penalties, whether it's a, I mean, I would view it as a misdemeanor. I think that will be a very significant step in institutions being held accountable above and beyond, you know, financial compensation. I think that criminalizing the failure to act on behalf of when you have knowledge is a critical step in this process. Uh, You mentioned you're planning to write a book with former Michigan running back who we met in that story, John Vaughn. What do you and what do John hope will come out of that process? A number of different things. One is in many ways a warning to parents that when their son or daughter is being recruited to know what difficult questions to ask. I think the kind of criteria standards you would impose on universities in terms of athlete safety or student safety to establish mechanisms for accountability when they failed, to begin the dialogue that victims are, I hate the way this sounds, I apologize, are not only the 14-year-old gymnasts, but victims are also 20-year-old large men who were also victimized. I think that's, that would make a significant contribution here. And I think, you know, piercing the, you know, the working title of the book is piercing the veil and to do just that, to pierce the veil of an institution like Michigan. And if I may add, you began with, is this difficult for me? So I said, the first time Vaughn reached out to me, I said, there are two things you need to know about me right away. One, that my father, my late father was on the staff of 
professor at the medical school, all this was happening. And two, that I'm the probably the largest Michigan football fan. And I can play Michigan football trivia with anybody and I can whack them. But because I really am committed to the truth, as difficult and painful as it may be, I don't see any alternative but to point the fingers where the fingers need to be pointed at. In the course of your work with John, has this colored your perception, changed your perception of your beloved Michigan Wolverines? Well, that's a, that is a great question. So when I sit in the stands because I have season tickets, I am very much aware of the fact I'm writing this book. But I'm also well aware of the fact that the kids who are in the field bear no responsibility and no guilt whatsoever. So I'm able to contextualize what I know about the Michigan of then and, frankly, the Michigan of today, because I think, again, present administration is making every mistake possible, and separate between that and what's happening on the field. Um, but does it impact on some level? Sure. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Giora, it is, of course, awful that these stories have become so common, but I do appreciate you coming on to discuss this one in particular and sharing some of your perspective. I cannot thank you enough for having me. This is an, an incredibly important story, and a shout out to you all for doing this, truly. And Kavitha Davidson's report was just part of this month's new episode of Real Sports. Also on the show, David Scott visits with former NBA star Amare Stoudemire, who's dedicated himself to Judaism, completing a conversion to modern orthodoxy and adopting a new way of life. Mary Carrillo takes a trip out west with Pearl Jam bassist and Montana native Jeff Amitt, who's returned home to build skate parks on Native American reservations across the state, an initiative that's helping to lift kids on the reservation out of depression and struggles with substance abuse. And Bryant Gumbel updates his piece on Marcus Dixon, whose incredible journey has taken him from behind bars as a wrongfully imprisoned inmate to the NFL sidelines, working as an assistant coach. You can catch those stories in all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.